Arizona Theater Company's recent public financial troubles are just the latest in a series of struggles for arts companies in the state. I'm Steve Goldstein. On today's Here and Now, we'll talk about why people who live here seem to lean more toward putting their money in sports rather than the arts. Is it the transient nature of our population? Are sporting events easier to market to the public? We'll discuss it. Also, Arizona Senator John McCain says he expects this year to offer the toughest re-election test he's had. He's facing a primary challenge from former state Senator Kelly Ward, and his presumptive Democratic opponent in November is going to be U.S. Representative Ann Kirkpatrick. A new story by Slate gauges McCain's challenge. I'll check in with writer Jim Newell. Plus, some of the rhetoric on the presidential campaign trail has led to comments about the potential increase of xenophobia in the U.S. We'll learn from Marlene Trump of ASU, who has studied the history of xenophobia. And humorous Lori Natero returns to Arizona this week. We'll talk about her latest collection of edgy essays, Housebroken. Here and now is next on KJZZ. The news is first. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. Good morning. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Coming up this hour, we'll talk about why people who live in the Valley seem to lean more toward putting their money into sports rather than the arts. Is it the transient nature of our population? Are sporting events easier to market to the public? Plus, some of the rhetoric on the presidential campaign trail has led to comments about the potential increase of xenophobia in the U.S. We'll hear from Marlene Tromp of ASU, who has studied the history of xenophobia. We start today's program by looking at Arizona Senator John McCain. McCain says he expects this year to offer the toughest re-election test he's had. He's facing a primary challenge from former state Senator Kelly Ward. And his presumptive Democratic opponent in November is going to be U.S. Representative Ann Kirkpatrick. Jim Newell of Slate wrote an in-depth piece about McCain recently. It's titled, Can John McCain Survive the Year of Trump? And Jim Newell's with us for a few minutes. Jim, thanks for joining me. Yeah, thanks for having me. So Senator McCain seems to become a different type of Republican in election years, especially in 2010 against J.D. Hayworth and this cycle. Based on what you know, how do he and his campaign staff sort of reconcile that uh, change, let's say? Well, you've got to look at uh, where the threat presents itself. In 2010, he, he didn't really have much Democratic opposition, but he had a, a strong primary opponent. So he took a pretty hard right turn that election cycle. He became very much more of a border hawk than he traditionally is. This cycle, though, he has um, a, a primary challenger he can't ignore in Kelly Ward and then an especially strong Democratic challenger in Ann Kirkpatrick. So he's sort of having to walk a, a narrower line here. Um, so you're just seeing a lot of bombardment of Kelly Ward in the primary campaign between him and his uh, and, and a super PAC supporting him. And then uh, it's it's going to be a big turn to a general election where polling has shown it's, it could be a pretty close match. Now, is State Senator Ward being hit hard because McCain is taking this seriously, but also because a lot of the opposition he gets in Arizona comes from the far right, which would tend to really have, I mean, they've been criticizing him for many years about all sorts of things, whether it's campaign finance, whether it's immigration. Is that why Ward is potentially seen as a threat, not because she's necessarily as potent a candidate as Matt Salmon or David Schweiker would have been? Yeah, she's not. There are some groups that have been looking to knock off McCain, both in Arizona and nationally, for a long time. Uh, as you said, they they were looking originally at Matt Salmon or Dave Schweiker, but neither of them chose to run. Uh, so Kelly Ward, who's a state senator from Lake Havasu City, uh, she's running instead. And it, it's not the best draw against McCain. And she doesn't have nearly as many resources as McCain. But if you look just at everything that's going on in national politics now, the, the people um, who have, who have always, the, the sort of far-right contingent that's always disliked McCain, uh, especially in recent years for his work on, on immigration reform, um, Trump has really flared that up with his with his talk about the border wall. So it, it's 
with these issues sort of firing up that contingent of the party, um, Ward is the best vessel for that. Now, if she has the resources, if she has a name recognition, it, it's going to be it's going to be pretty difficult for her still. How does McCain's endorsement of Trump, or Trump, even though it's it's really tepid after some of the things Trump said about him, how is that seen as far as affecting his reelection uh, chances at all? Is it one of those things where it's seen as that's politics, or are people really disappointed in McCain? A little bit of both. It, it depends on how you ask. I, I think it's certainly politics. I, I think he, you know, is. He's, so he's always been a loyal soldier, sort of, to the Republican cause. You remember in 2000, uh, when he lost in a pretty nasty primary election against George W. Bush for president, he then campaigned really hard for George W. Bush when he was up for re-election the same year in 2004. Um, so I, I think you're seeing people saying he has to get in line behind Trump, as you're seeing a, a lot of senators doing. They're getting in line and saying they support them, but they're certainly not campaigning with him, and they're certainly not... Uh, hugging their arms around him. It's just very, it's it's just, a, it, I think that one thing shows how tricky that this path is for him because Trump, even remember last year, criticized him as a war hero, but he did get captured. So maybe he's not that much a war hero. And yet you're still seeing McCain supporting his, uh, his candidacy. So that's just, it shows sort of the narrow path he's walking here. Jim, we're only scratching the surface of your piece here, and I've only got about 90 seconds left. But I, I want to ask you, you, you posit this at the end of your piece, which is why McCain is running again. He's going to turn 80 this year. Why do you think he's running again? You know, I think uh, the, the big part is just that he, he's obviously a pretty powerful senator, and he's, on the, he's chair of the Armed Services Committee. And that's, uh, you know, with the war against ISIS, the battle against ISIS, he's still very much trying to direct that. Uh, I also just posited at the end of my piece that, you know, he, he really enjoys a fight. And that's something I picked up from everyone I talked to. He really enjoys, uh, you know, a, a hard campaigning. You're seeing it because his campaign has been pretty, pretty merciless against Kelly Ward. It's been pretty efficient. It's very well funded. And I, I think he enjoys that aspect of com- campaigning. And he's not the sort of personality to just rest on his laurels and, re- and retire quietly. Jim Newell is a writer for Slate who wrote an in-depth piece about John McCain recently, and you can find it online. It's called, Can John McCain Survive the Year of Trump? Jim, good to talk with you. Thanks. Yeah, thanks for having me. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. In Phoenix, I'm Steve Goldstein. Arizona Theater Company's financial struggles recently became very public as the company is getting closer to the date later this week when it may have to make the decision to cancel its upcoming season. Funding shortfalls aren't a new thing for arts organizations in Arizona, or other states for that matter, but is it more difficult to get support here? And how does support for the arts compare to support for sports? A recent letter to the editor in the Arizona Republic put it this way, Phoenix and Tucson's Arizona Theater Company financial shortfall is indicative of how poorly the arts are supported in Arizona. While many will pay outrageous ticket prices for sporting events, few will support the arts. It would be a great magnanimous gesture if our overcompensated sports figures and their millionaire owners would bail out the financially strapped Arizona Theater Company for only $2 million. I have little hope they would support the arts, even though it would hardly take away from their attendance or income. That was a recent letter to the editor in the Arizona Republic. In a few minutes, we'll hear from an Arizona arts leader and a longtime sports commentator. I'm joined first by Tom Sadler, president and CEO of the Arizona Sports and Tourism Authority. 
And Tom, what do you make of how this area supports sports, from the biggest national events to the smallest local ones? Yeah, well, I think it, it goes without saying that, that our community embraces sports, uh, you know, whether it's at the high school or collegiate level or, for that matter, the pro level. I mean, we're one of the very few cities, uh, elite cities, that, that have the four major sports teams in it. And then you start to throw in uh, our, our Phoenix uh, Waste Management Open, what happens out at TIR, and then, of course, uh, the Cactus League uh, situation. I mean, this definitely is a sports mecca. Uh, in the Phoenix metropolitan area. What is it about sports that might make people more overtly passionate, let's say, about supporting it than the arts? Well, you know, first of all, stating for the record, I am a big fan of the arts. Uh, having a daughter that's an aspiring actress, uh, I worked at Arizona State for many years and uh, had the privilege of uh, attending a number of events, uh, whether it was at Gamage or other areas uh, on campus. So um, I can't call myself an aficionado of the arts of all kinds or really understand uh, what that community is faced with relative to funding challenges. Uh, you know, but I think it goes to uh, a quality of life issue here uh, you know, in the Phoenix metropolitan area, and I think that is one of those needed amenities uh, that, that our community longs for. I think there's a, a tremendous amount of support. I think if you try and compare the arts to the sports situation uh, in Phoenix, they're a little bit apples to oranges. As, as, as we talk and focus right now perhaps on the mega events that have come uh, to the stadium and more to come soon, uh, you know, those are the culmination of an entire season that, that really can't predict who's whose team is going to be playing in that, which community is going to be you know, interested to travel here. Uh, when I look at the arts, and I, I'm thinking maybe focusing on musicals or those kinds of performances, you know, uh, other communities all have those in their areas, most do anyway, uh, some at a higher level than others, and, and they're able to get their, their art fix, if you will, their opportunity to enjoy the arts in their own community and really don't have to travel here to see it. Now, some would say, well, Tom, what about New York City and Broadway? Well, yeah, I get that. There's probably others you could name as well, the folks travel there. I don't know, and again, this is coming from a, uh, somewhat of an uninformed position. I don't know if we have you know, besides Gamage, uh, you know, that kind of venue that will bring people here because they couldn't get it anywhere else. And I think that's one of the major differences. Tom Sadler is president and CEO of the Arizona Sports and Tourism Authority. And Tom, again, thanks for the time. Thank you, Steve. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. To dig in deeper on how people in the Valley support sports versus the arts, I'm joined by Rusty Foley, executive director of Arizona Citizens for the Arts. Rusty, welcome. Thank you, Steve. Nice to be here. And joining us by phone is longtime Valley sportscaster and radio host Brad Sesmat, who's CEO of Sports360AZ.com. Brad, good morning to you. Hi, Rusty. Hi, Steve. How are you? Good to have you with us, Brad. Uh, Rusty, let me start with you. I think um, Arizona Theater Company is getting a lot of attention. Phoenix Symphony has in the past, Belly, Arizona. Is the financial situation in general for the arts in the Valley as dire as it seems when we hear about some of these big companies? Well, I don't know if it's as, as dire as it, as it seems when uh, when we look at these individual uh, uh, organizations. I think individually, 
every major organization and every organization generally uh, has a situation that's a little bit uh, uh, specific to their uh, to their circumstance. But uh, there's no doubt that uh, since the recession in 07, 08, uh, the arts community has struggled and probably, and, and, and to be specific here, we're talking about the nonprofit arts mm-hmm. community, has really struggled uh, to uh, 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 retain and, and, and rebuild the uh, unearned income or the contributed income that helps support their, their business model. Brad, one of the things that strikes me is that the Diamondbacks have had a, a, a poor season. Um, they're they're mm-hmm. selling, let's say, maybe they're filling up maybe half the stadium on an average night, and yet because of built-in television money, that sort of thing, we don't really worry about their resources as much because the owners could sell the team and make a huge profit. Where do you see the contrast there between funding for sports and funding for the arts as someone who's been involved in sports here for decades? Well, I think, Steve, it's, it's unfortunate on the arts end as a dad. I've got a son who's 11 who loves string bass. I've got two daughters that were into acting and into theater. So as a, as a dad, I look at it and say, this goes all the way back into our school systems, and is there enough being emphasized in the arts? Fortunately, I'm out in Chandler, and the Chandler Unified School District does a terrific job, but they still are facing the cuts on the arts front. I'm in media, so media will gravitate towards sports and make a big deal out of sports rather than the arts. That's just the reality of the situation. I think a guy like Ken Kendrick, he does a lot. I did a sit-down interview with him at the Phoenix Art Museum back in March. He contributes mightily to them. It's up to each individual owner. I've always said, Steve that and Rusty, that when you are an owner of a sports franchise, you know, you, to be a, a good steward within the community, you have to look at every last bit of what's going on outside of just your games. doesn't matter if it's the charitable organization. Cardinal Charities does a terrific job. Sons Charities does a terrific job. I think to Rusty's point earlier that we are in a tough spot still. There, there are organizations that have not bounced all the way back from 08, 09. But I think in just a broad brush, to answer your question, Steve, it's, it really starts in the schooling and to get kids interested to go to the theater, to be in theater, and it takes time to make change. And unfortunately, not just here in Arizona, but I think across our country, the arts are just not emphasized. If Hamilton comes out on stage and it makes a big buzz, which it did, which was terrific for everybody interested in the arts, and I tried to get tickets back there, not a chance, um, we -hmm. need to emphasize that more than just on the Sunday morning news magazine show right. or on 60 Minutes. It right. needs to be a day in, day out, just like sports is. Rusty, jump in. Well, yeah, I, I appreciate your comments, Brad. I, I would like to correct one misperception, though. The The challenge in the arts community is not in the in the number of attendees. Uh, the, actually, over the, over the state of Arizona, uh, we've got uh, really good data, the same kind of data that the sports teams uh, in the Super Bowl use to measure their impact on the community that shows that there are 10 million uh, individual attendances in uh, in the arts community across the state of Arizona every year. In in the city of Phoenix alone, that's a, it is about five million, a little over five million. And frankly, that's more attendance and participation in arts than uh, by the five major sports. Uh, Just they're spread out in such a different it's way. It's spread out in such a different way. We you know we're talking about in in this in in uh, the city of Phoenix at least uh, almost a hundred individual arts organizations that are giving performance have expo- uh, ex- exhibitions, are, are working with, with, with children. Uh, so it's a, l- a little bit different. I think also I would remind, uh, this is a nonprofit model. Uh, 
And I think that unfortunately for the arts, uh, very often they are lumped in with other charities. Mm -hmm. And when you consider the economic impact, and again, uh, in the city of Phoenix, uh, uh, over the course of the year, the economic impact is uh, somewhere on the order of uh, $400 million a year. That's direct and indirect. That's, uh, you know, that's equal to the Super Bowl or the Final Four or the Cactus League season. Uh, but people think of it as nonprofit, uh, uh, a charity rather than an investment in an economic sector and an investment in something that really is so enhancing to our reputation as a state. And frankly, as uh, you know, as in Phoenix, as the sixth largest uh, city in the United States, you know, the sixth largest city in the United States cannot uh, uh, have the kind of reputation it wants without a vital arts and culture sector. Brad, we've got about 30 so seconds to break. What, what, Go ahead. What you're saying then, Rusty, is it just needs to be marketed differently. Because sports, sports is going to get the lion's share of the dollars, whether the team's good or not good. That's just the way it is in society, unfortunately. But it just needs to be marketed differently so that people understand the number. Well, that's what you're suggesting. Yeah, I think that there. I think that is a, a, a piece of it, uh, Brad. And I think that that's a challenge that a lot of our org arts organizations are facing these days. Uh, sure. How do they? How do they make their product uh, or, or 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 develop those additional revenue streams that the that the that sports has? We're talking about funding for the sports versus funding for the arts here in Arizona with Brad Sassman and Rusty Foley. We'll continue our conversation right after this on here and now. KJZZ is supported by Home Instead Senior Care, serving the Valley since 1997 as a source of non-medical in-home services for seniors. Assistance available from a few hours to continuous care. More info at homeinstead.com. This is Here and Now on KJZZ. Stay with us for the latest international news at 1 on BBC NewsHour. Well, lots of sunshine around the state right now. 91 degrees in Tucson at 79 in Flagstaff, 100 in Casa Grande, 96 in Yuma. Well, a special thank you to our Leadership Society members, Jennifer Jacobs and Michael and Sheila Kerman, for their generous support in bringing programs like Here and Now and All Things Considered to KJZZ. To join the Leadership Society, visit us at leadership.kjzz.org. Sunny skies right now over Phoenix, and it is 98 degrees at 1124. Good morning. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix, talking with Rusty Foley, Executive Director of Arizona Citizens for the Arts and longtime Valley sportscaster and radio host Brad Sesmat, CEO of Sports360AZ.com. Brad, one thing I want to bring up, you, you brought up how, uh, how owners and teams, Jerry Colangelo for years with the Suns, was very involved in the arts as well. Uh, how important is that community leadership from your perspective, whether it's from business, whether it's from sports? Does there have to be that crossover? Oh, I believe there does, Steve. I, I really believe that if you have a sports franchise and all you do is care about what happens on Sunday or Saturday night or during the week when those games are going on for two to three hours and, and you're not involved across the board in the community, again, it, it goes back to, to what I said earlier that you've got to be part of the community and a fabric of the community. The arts is as much a fabric of a community as sports should be, in my opinion, and even greater so. Because not every kid's going to have an opportunity to, to look up and say, I'm going to be on the floor being this basketball kid. I'd rather be playing 
in the orchestra. I'd rather be acting. So I think that they do go hand in hand. That doesn't mean that they should just go out and write a blank check and support them without doing their due diligence. And as I said earlier, I think that all the franchises in town, special franchises, they all have their arm, Coyotes Charities, Suns Charities, Diamondback Charities, Cardinal Charities. And it's, I think it's important that those organizations here see the need, meet with those people throughout the year. Sometimes I feel like when I'm in the nonprofit world that I'll get asked, can you introduce me to set ball player? To set ball player just got a new big contract. Well, that's not what it's about. Set ball player may not have an interest in this area or that area. Russ, you jump in on that. Yeah, I, I think you know community leadership is something. It's it's interesting. Uh, Brad is certainly c- correct. We we do have uh, a number of leaders in this community who speak up for the arts, but you know they're uh, for the. I'm not precisely sure what the what the source of it is, but you know when you go back in our history. Uh, you know, 30, 40 years ago, before we had a uh, uh, a world-class expanded Phoenix Art Museum, before we had a Herberger Theater, even a Symphony Hall, uh, we had a community leaders who, who made a conscious decision to build an arts community, build a cultural community, because they realized that if they if uh, Arizona was going, and Phoenix in particular, was going to attract the kind of businesses and uh, build the kind of lifestyle that we wanted to market, uh, we needed a active vital cultural community. I think, uh, you know, for uh, sadly, I, I think sometimes that is taken for granted. Now, I don't, I, mm-hmm. I, there, this, and, and, you know, may, this may not be a problem that is limited simply to the arts, but the need to continue to steward uh, these resources. And Arizona Theater Company is a good example of this. Arizona Theater Company is 50 years old. There is no other institution like it in the state of Arizona. Uh, and I, I think we shouldn't make no mistake about it. If Arizona Theater Company does not survive, it will be as damaging to our state reputation as losing the Phoenix Symphony or the Arizona Opera or the ballet. Uh, it, it, it is a huge piece of who we are and how we present ourselves to the, to the rest of the country. Now, Brad Rusty, we're running out of time. We have only about a minute or so left. I apologize. We, we can talk about this for a lot longer. But, Brad, mm-hmm. let me start with you very briefly. The transient nature of a population comes up a lot, and people will stick to, let's say, they're still fans of, of the Cubs or the Browns or whatever it may be, and they also, in some sense, will support their symphony back home. How much do you think the transient nature affects it? Briefly, please. No, I, I believe... That's 100% accurate. There's no way to compete with that. Last time I checked, I'm in the 602, the 480, the 623 area code, and yet when I walk into Chase Field or I walk into downtown into the Suns Arena or even a Cardinals game, it's filled with fans from the other team. And it's just something we're going to have to deal with and accept. It's not going to change overnight. Rusty, what about that? Yeah, I'm a longtime local, too, and I, I fully embrace what you say there, Brad. And it, and it is, unfortunately, it is it is true in uh, arts philanthropy. It's true in philanthropy generally. But I will say that in, in, in uh, uh, support of all of our Arizona arts supporters, you know, I, I, sadly, uh, in, in the sports arena, a lot of times, Arizona is sort of known as a bandwagon uh, state, uh, yep. uh, fair weather fans. And uh, arts folks are, are there year in and and year out and year round too in every corner of the state uh, supporting their local organizations you know contributing to local community life Rusty Foley is executive director of Arizona Citizens for the Arts longtime Valley sportscaster radio host Brad Sesmet is now CEO of sports360az.com thank you both for helping me scratch the surface on this thank you Steve thank you Steve
You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. The measles outbreak in Pinal County is the largest current one in the U.S. There have been 22 cases in Arizona since last May. The cases are centered around the Eloy Detention Center, where according to Pinal County Health Director Thomas Schreier, the refusal of some employees to get vaccinated may exacerbate the problem. Measles was wiped out in the U.S. in 2000, but it's returned recently because of some people who have chosen to avoid vaccinations. Rhina McIntyre is the head of the School of Public Health and Community Medicine at the University of New South Wales in Australia. She's in the Valley this week as part of a presentation at ASU on pandemics, bioterrorism, and biosecurity. And she joins me to talk about those topics. Rhina, first of all, how dangerous is the situation of measles currently in Arizona, one that technically is entirely preventable? Yeah, measles resurgence in countries like the U.S., which are technically declared as having eradicated measles, which means it doesn't naturally circulate in in the U.S., um, are experiencing uh, many outbreaks. You know, you might recall the Disneyland outbreak last year. Um, It is a concern. It is a a concern and um, it's a challenge for public health to control these outbreaks. Well, have some vaccines for some people become almost a boogeyman of some sort? And how troublesome is that? And how does one counter that? So the reasons for uh, there being under-vaccinated pockets of people in the community are twofold. One is the vaccine refusers who refuse the vaccines for their babies. Um, That's actually quite a low proportion in the US. The percentage of infants who are vaccinated in the US are well over 90%. So it's a, a small percentage. Um, And the other is um, people who've been born elsewhere and come into the country who haven't had the same vaccination schedule, so migrants and their children, um, and indeed the um, outbreak in Phoenix, in Arizona at the moment, sorry, is um, in a detention centre for migrants. So um, that highlights that there are two different demographics, the infants as well as adults, young adults and adolescents who are under-vaccinated who tend to be from migrant backgrounds. So addressing vaccine refusal is only one part of the solution. Well, what are some of the other aspects of it? Because I, I, I think it seems for many that is the potential starting point for something that, that could grow much worse. Is that is that a logical conclusion or is that just people being worried about something they shouldn't necessarily be worried about? It is a concern, but the vaccine anti-vaccine lobby is a fairly small but vocal group and they tend to influence slightly more educated people, um, people who are a bit more affluent, who conscientiously object to vaccination. They make a decision that, you know, they believe vaccines are bad. The research shows that there's actually very little gain in trying to change the minds of people who are hardline vaccine refusers. But there's a a larger group of parents who are hesitant about vaccination. They're not outright refusers. They're just a little bit unsure. There's a lot more gain in targeting those parents um, and trying to uh, inform them and educate them to to make better vaccination choices for their children. Are there potential pandemics based on the work and the studies that you've done that give you most pause that could potentially cause problems that in, in some corner of the world we're not even thinking about? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, if you look at the timeline of major epidemics and pandemics in the world, they are increasing in frequency. There's no doubt about it. There's a clustering in time in the last 10 years. uh, We're seeing many more major epidemics and pandemics than we were a decade or two decades ago. And that is a cause for concern. What are the reasons? You know, is it 
changes in demography and climate and patterns of interaction between animals and humans, what's the reason for it? We don't know. But, you know, you, you just have to look at something like the Ebola epidemic in 2014, where cases seeded all over the world, including to the US, you know, from travellers. Microbes and viruses don't know any geographic borders. An epidemic anywhere in the world today, in such a world that is so connected and globalised, is a problem for everybody and poses a risk to every country. So are there resources available and research if they were focused in the right areas to prevent and treat those kinds of issues should they arise? Or are we seeing a shortfall when it comes to that sort of thing? There is a lot of research in all areas of epidemics, including development of drugs, vaccines, surveillance systems, um, and so on. Mostly in, in major global sort of catastrophic outbreaks, the failures that occur are not biomedical failures. They are systems failures. They are in a lack of coordination, cooperation and understanding between the multiple different stakeholders who have to respond, you know, so on the ground. In the Ebola epidemic, for example, you would have had health people, public health people, NGOs such as Medicine Sans Frontiers, you would have had WHO, you would have had governments, uh, military, police uh, and other agencies all responding and each one is in a vertical system with very little understanding at the grassroots level of the agendas and the perspectives of each other and, and that caused a lot of problems. So I think there's a need for... Uh, more systems research that brings together different stakeholders to get a better understanding and then a better future ability to respond in a multidisciplinary way. It's KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Speaking with Rhina McIntyre, head of the School of Public Health and Community Medicine and Professor of Infectious Disease Epidemiology at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. She's also an adjunct professor with ASU's College of Public Service and Community Solutions. What options have emerged to replace the traditional needle for vaccines? It seems like there are some people who simply don't like needles. Maybe there are more effective ways of giving the vaccine. Yeah, there's a lot of different options. You know, we've even got edible vaccines in development, you know, given through um, vegetables like tomatoes or, or potatoes. So you can consume the vaccine. There are oral vaccines. The polio, the old polio vaccine is a an oral vaccine. The rotavirus vaccine is an oral vaccine. It's just swallowed in drops. And of course, there's new things like um, micro patches and nano patches and needle-free technologies that are applied to the skin but don't actually use um, a large needle, so so there's no need. They're, they're painless. Um, they're not in, other than the oral swallowed vaccines like polio and rotavirus, they're not in widespread use at this stage, um, but there's certainly a lot of potential um, for needle-free vaccination in the future. And recently the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention in the U.S. issued a recommendation that people not necessarily use a nasal flu vaccine spray, calling it less effective. Do you have thoughts about that? So the um, nasal flu vaccine is used in the US. It's not used in, the, in Australia. It's um, quite good in children. It may not be as effective in other groups. I think, um, you know, following recommendations of uh, the CDC is, is um, warranted. Uh, it's based on the current evidence, which suggests that, you know, the injectable vaccine would give you a better response. Um, but I think it needs to be looked at by age group. For a number of years, people have been reading magazine articles, maybe even reading fiction related to the threat of bioterrorism. We've seen it in, in the Middle East in certain countries as well. 
Is that something going forward that should be at the top of list of trying to prevent, the top of list of concerns for people as, as war changes? Yes, it should be. And in fact, this year, the Biological Weapons Convention is being reviewed again uh, for the eighth time. Um, and that's very topical at the moment. Um, it's interesting because when you think about phys- physical terrorism, you know, even a child can tell if a building collapses, whether it's caused by a bomb or an earthquake. It's not difficult to tell when there's been an act of physical terrorism. That's quite different, however, for bioterrorism. Distinguishing a natural from an unnatural epidemic is really difficult even for experts because most bioterrorism agents occur in nature. The only one that doesn't is smallpox because it's been eradicated. So if we were to see an epidemic of smallpox, we would know straight away it's bioterrorism. But how do you tell, you know, uh, for any other disease, anthrax, plague, um, uh, Ebola, these all occur in nature. And uh, there's, a, there's a big gap in terms of our ability to measure and identify and correctly predict bioterrorism. And when you look at historical events, bioterrorism events, they've very rarely been picked up at the time as unnatural. People have mistaken them for natural outbreaks, including you may remember the salmonella um, outbreak uh, by the Rajneesh cult in the US in the 1980s. That was not picked up as unnatural by the public health authorities and it was you know, only identified a year later as unnatural. So um, the other big game changer in biosecurity is quantum advances in science, which have really drastically altered the landscape. This includes the ability to engineer and modify or even create brand new viruses, dangerous viruses, and to edit DNA. Rhina McIntyre is head of the School of Public Health and Community Medicine and professor of infectious disease epidemiology at the University of New South Wales in Sydney, Australia. She's also an adjunct professor with ASU's College of Public Service and Community Solutions, and she'll be speaking about pandemics, bioterrorism, and biosecurity at 2.30 this afternoon at the ASU Skysong campus in Scottsdale. And still to come on Here and Now, we'll talk about xenophobia and its history, plus humorous Lori Natero attempts to crack us up. Stay with us. KJZZ is supported by Area Agency on Aging, offering a 14-week hoarding therapy group for adults 60 years of age and older, designed to educate and guide individuals who self-identify with hoarding behaviors. Details at aaaphx.org. Good morning. This is Here and Now on 91.5 FM and online at kjzz.org. Valley forecast calling for plenty of sunshine and a high near 110 degrees up to 111 for tomorrow. Coming up at 12, it's NPR's Here and Now, a U.S. representative who supports Donald Trump has some advice for the presumptive Republican nominee. Talk less, listen more. Also, turning an invasive crab into a delicious meal. That and more coming up on Here and Now from Boston, starting at noon. Sunny skies, 98 degrees right now in Phoenix at 1140. This is KJZZ's Here and Now. In Phoenix, I'm Steve Goldstein. Some of the words and phrases used by Republican presidential candidate Donald Trump have caused people to stop and wonder whether he's saying them for effect or if there's true meaning behind them. Recently, Trump was criticized by leaders in the Republican and Democratic parties for asserting that the judge overseeing a class action suit against Trump was biased against him because he was of Mexican heritage. Trump's comments were called racist, as were other things he said about undocumented immigrants from Mexico. This is far from the first time the world has seen these kinds of ideas from those who want to lead us. 
And that's part of what's covered in the book Fear, Loathing, and Victorian Xenophobia, which was edited by Marlene Tromp, Dean of the New College of Interdisciplinary Arts and Sciences at ASU's West Campus, and she's with me now. And Dean Trump, xenophobia is not a new concept. Now, how would you define it, and how has it changed from the Victorian era to today? Xenophobia is the fear and loathing of foreigners. So it's um, what we argue in the book is that it's it's based on an affective response. So it's our emotion. It's not intellectual. There's a difference between intellectually being afraid that someone could harm you and just having that gut-level fear response. So xenophobia is the gut-level fear response in the same way that racism is a fear of people of different racial backgrounds. Xenophobia is a fear of people from different uh, national backgrounds. So someone's perceived as a foreigner. It doesn't necessarily have to be someone who actually is a foreigner. You can look at someone and imagine that they're a foreigner and experience that xenophobic response, even if they were born and raised in the same country that you live in. It has changed over the last hundred years, but not much. Mm. What's happened is, so in the 19th century, which is what we're doing is tracing the roots of that concept emerging. In the 19th century, um, there were There was an explosion of xenophobia because there was an explosion of global border crossing. So it's the first movement of globalization. And with social media and technology and the way in which the world has become intimately interconnected in the last even dozen years, you could say there's been a really radical change, our our levels of xenophobia have increased dramatically because instead of visiting foreign landscapes, those foreign landscapes seem to our eyes to appear in our own borders all the time. And it happens through social media. It happens through ideas that travel through social media. Um, it happens through immigration. It happens with refugees. And so we see it happening all over the world and in all sorts of different contexts. Can someone be xenophobic about someone who looks foreign or whatever it may be in his or her home country and yet still be drawn to want to visit other countries and take in their culture? Is there a difference there? Can someone sort of play both sides of the fence there? Absolutely. In fact, um, one of the things we talk about is in the book is xenophilia and synecdoche, which is the, the fascination with the foreign. So you can be fascinated by the foreign and still fear it. You can be intrigued and and compelled by the foreign and still be afraid and even have that simultaneous loathing. So somebody, for example, um, might want to visit a resort in Mexico and dabble in Mexican culture, but be very afraid of Mexican immigrants. That's a you know something we see here in Arizona is that sometimes people have irrational fears. Now that doesn't mean there aren't real fears too and things that we could intellectually legitimate. Um, but that affective response, it's not based on analysis of information or thoughtful reaction. It's just gut. At what point is this about freedom of speech, freedom of thought? And at what point does it reach a level of, I'm going to exaggerate and say mass hysteria, for example. But even when we think about Donald Trump, who's been saying certain things. You mentioned about someone's heritage. Of course, the, the judge of Mexican heritage who was born in Indiana was the object of Trump's criticism and ire and whatnot, which many people saw as racism and other people thought, well, I'm glad he's saying it. Where's the dynamic there? What's, what's the, where's the line being crossed? I think um, that's all of those things are worthy of debate and conversation. Uh, where it becomes a problem is when we are just reacting from the gut and aren't talking about it and aren't thinking about it and aren't critically analyzing it. And because we've done, we talk about racism, we talk about sexism, we talk about homophobia, but because we've done very little talk until almost just in the last couple of 
weeks and months, we've begun to talk about xenophobia. Because we've done very little talk about that, we really haven't brought it to the level of consciousness so that we can do that thoughtful analysis and actually make discuss together, like intelligent people, does it make sense to be worried about someone's national heritage when they're adjudicating a case that might be related to a certain kind of uh, what might be perceived as a xenophobic or racist impulse. So there, those things are worth discussion, but when we evacuate the intellectual part of it because we're just reacting from our gut, that's when it becomes this kind of uh, uh, problem. And, and in some cases, it can become uh, a kind of hysteria, although I don't think we've seen any evidence of that, of that kind of mass hysteria mm-hmm. yet. I think it's important for us to to actually begin to bring it to the level of consciousness so that we can be thoughtful and critique it. Does it seem strange at all that there would be as much potential xenophobia in a place like this, considering that if people were to stop and think, they may think to themselves, well, whether it's a century ago or more or less, my parents' grandparents were, for, were from somewhere else as well, so I was probably seen that way. So why would I want to, to then take the next step of being xenophobic towards someone else? Mm-hmm. Xenophobia is one thread. It can be woven together with racism. It can be woven together with classism. So somebody who's poor and looks brown might be perceived differently than somebody who's wealthy. So it can be woven together with other things. So it might be someone who's lived in this country and had generations of family in this country just as long as somebody else. But there's a perception of what a national identity is. Um, One of the things I often ask my students to think about is imagine the president of the United States. And until very recently, every single one of them had been a white man. And that's our conception of what it means to be an American. And so uh, it doesn't mean that we don't know that there aren't other kinds of Americans, but it helps determine that perception. And so it's difficult. Sometimes people make those judgments rashly. It's not like they inquire. Um, I had a, a colleague who teaches uh, foreign languages. Mm-hmm. And she was organizing a conference on a South American nation state on campus. And she was talking to one of the people who was coming to speak. And she was on the phone uh, walking into the grocery store. And somebody approached her and spit on her and told her to speak English or go back to her own country. And she was born here and raised here and, you know, an American academic. Mm-hmm. And, and she was shocked by that response. And so it wasn't about her heritage. The person didn't inquire, oh, do you speak Spanish as a language you've studied? Are you from the United States? It was just an assumption that that person made. And that was a xenophobic impulse. As this country, as this society becomes more diverse, as we have more interracial marriage and we have people of, of multiple backgrounds and whatnot, is there a thought that there may be less xenophobia, but what we see of it may be more harsh. That's an interesting question. I think uh, time will tell, but I do think that what we what we see is that when there are, at the moment of a real peak of global barriers breaking down, that's when we see the peak of xenophobia. And often in the wake of that, there's an adjustment period. People begin to see what is rational and legitimate to be afraid of, um, what might be an affective response that's overreactive, and people begin to sort those things out. We've seen dramatic changes in the last couple of decades with regards to perceptions of homosexuality in the culture, for example. And 
And I think 10 years ago, it would have been hard for people to predict how quickly those changes would have happened. But many of those changes, I think, happen because young people, it's very generational, young people just aren't as concerned about gay marriage or about gay people adopting as older people are. And so it might be that there's a generational component to this, too, as you're saying, when you've got people who have, you know, when a, somebody's best friend is is a biracial child who has parents of different ethnic, racial, and national backgrounds, it becomes more normalized and you see what's real and what the real threats are. What what are the real dangers? What aren't the dangers? And so it becomes, you your exposure makes you less vulnerable to just the affective response. So that's often why there's a peak after there's uh, new access to global landscapes. There's a peak of xenophobia. And then in the wake of that, it often dissipates. But it's important to get intellectually involved in that to make that happen. Marlene Tromp is dean of the New College of Interdisciplinary Arts and Sciences at ASU's West Campus. She's also co-editor of the book Fear, Loathing, and Victorian Xenophobia. Marlene, thanks for coming in. Thank you. You're listening to KJZZ's Here and Now. I'm Steve Goldstein in Phoenix. Humorous Lori Notero has had 11 books published, most of them featuring funny, wild, out-there stories about her, her family, people she's met. Her latest is called Housebroken, Admissions of an Untidy Life. And while she's in the Valley this week, she'll be part of Barflies at the Valley Bar in Phoenix tomorrow night. And on Saturday, she'll be hosting a writing workshop at Changing Hands Bookstore in Phoenix called Humor 101 Plus Burritos. And Lori Notero joins me. Welcome back, Lori. One of the stories in the new book features your love. It's almost an obsession with Twinkies. How did you feel in 2012 when Twinkies were taken off the shelf? It, what happened to everyone? It was just, it was such a terrible ennui. Like the world suffered in a great way when Hostess went out of business. And then we all had to do disgustingly dirty things like eat Little Debbies. It's not a time of my life that I'm, <laughs> I'm proud of. You know, I ate a Little Debbie and it was, I hated myself while doing it. But um, what's the difference in consistency? Just texture between a Twinkie and a Little Debbie. Well, I think I would like to think that Twinkies, they have a hint of love in them. True, it's corporate love and it's chemical love. But I think that that fluffiness where Little Debbies are just very kind of dense, crumbly and waxy. And that does not say love to me at all. That says that says bakery abuse. That's like as opposed to domestic abuse. That's bakery abuse. That's abusing the people who you were supposed to care about. Well, so how did you feel after eating the Little Debbie, and did it make you do shame. something drastic? Yeah, shame. I'm on Selexa still. Yeah, <laughs> shame, utter shame. I'm st- I'm working through it every Thursday. So, did, <laughs> did, but I'm yeah, sorry, I, I, no, but I'm ama- you, you went and made your own. I did. Twinkies. Well, that was that the seems only... like a pretty wild step. Yeah, because if it happened once, you know, like history repeats itself. You know, like we we have not learned our lesson with Twinkies, so it's it's completely feasible that that kind of destruction and mayhem may be visited on the world once more. And I wanted to be ready, as opposed to having water in my basement and like you know vacuum packed food. I needed to have I needed to be able to make Twinkies. So I I embarked on this journey with a Twinkie maker that I bought on um, some dumb shopping site. Um, it also doubles as a corn dog maker. So right then and there, you know I'm at, <laughs> at terrible odds. So um, and the first batch that I made, they really did taste like uh, corn dogs, but without the meat. 
but they, it still retained that meaty taste. It, there was just no meat <laughs> in it, but it was still meaty. It was very odd. So I went on to four more recipes until I found one that I think might suffice in times of extreme crisis. You know, I think about all the stuff you've written, and you are definitely, with, you're always called a humorist because the stuff you write is funny. And yet, when you're experiencing some of these things, were you thinking to yourself as you look back and you're writing some of these stories that you have for years, were you thinking, I had a pretty normal childhood, or were you thinking, boy, this was pretty wacky, and I'm, I'm glad I have these stories to look back on? Well, because my mom is probably listening right now. She doesn't pay my copay for therapy anymore, so that's good. I can be a little bit more free about what I say. But, you know, to us, we really did have a very normal upbringing because we didn't know any better. Um, But when I look back on it, I think we had a pretty fun household. Both my parents were, I mean, they were Italian, uh, you know, American New Yorkers who, you know, if you ever watch reruns of Kojak, that was the New York that we moved from, (laughs) you know. It was just kind of like... Kojak, you know, move along, jelly bean, that kind of thing. It was a seedy, seedy place. And, but they, they wanted to move us to Phoenix where it was really nice and clean and there wasn't a whole lot of trash yet. And people from New Jersey were still in New Jersey. Um, and so we grew up in this environment that was half Phoenix, but it was still New York in our house. So we got that New York kind of sense of humor and that, that wisecracking, you know, busting your chops kind of thing and it was always like that so I had the kind of best of both worlds so maybe my friends thought inside my house was kind of weird and it always smelled like smoke but (laughs) we didn't know that smoke killed people then you know it wasn't until later when my mom quit we've talked about how you moved to the Pacific Northwest and you're one of the many who who left Phoenix behind and yet you're still so identified as like a Phoenix humorist a funny person from Phoenix do you think it's your background that made you funny and made these stories funny. Did Phoenix play any role in that? The contrast from New York to Phoenix or anything like that? Outside oh, of your outside of your household, I mean. I think that growing up and playing outside in 118 degrees certainly baked my little walnut brain in some pretty weird ways. <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to stun you into silence again. I know it. Um, but um, yeah, I think, and I, you know, I, I just I had a good time growing up here, and and I just think that. It's just genetics, and it's just, you know, my mom, like, smoked when she was pregnant with me and ate a lot of Chinese food. So something was going to happen, you know, and I guess this is the result. It's just, it's these books. And I'm sorry, but it's just, you know, I apologize to her a lot, so. Well, I mean, when you when you do tell stories about family, but these are these are fun stories. She but doesn't I, think so. Well, that, well, that's it. I was wondering about that. <laughs> that hasn't held you back, though. <laughs> no, in fact, I was trying to get her. There's one story in there that's really great about my being a very bad house guest at their house. And always, I always hear when I enter the house, it's always something. Lori, did you use the Keurig today? Because now it won't work. You know, Lori, don't leave <laughs> your, your towel on the uh, on the curtain rod because it's only held up there with gravity and you're going to pull the whole wall down. I tried to get her last night. I was like, Mom, let's do a duet. When, when I'm at my reading and you read your parts and I'll read my parts and it'll be like spectacular. And she was like, shut up. I don't want to do it. She, she called her. She said, I'm not an extrovert. I'm an introvert. <laughs> <laughs> my mother is an introvert. Yeah. As much as I'm a nun. So uh-huh. now part of the reason you're in town is because you're going to be doing some some humor writing classes at Changing Hands. Right. Yes. 
do you think that if you've got funny stories, you can find a way to craft that? Because I always wonder, how do you teach someone to use their voice to be funny? Because you've got these stories and you have formed, this is this is Laurie Notero, this is how you tell stories. I, You know, I, I used to think, I think it's both. I used to think that you had to be kind of a little messed up in the head and kind of you just had to have that perspective that you kind of see things that other people don't see. And I, I do notice that, that I, I pick up details and things like that, that my husband who's sitting right next to me just does not. It's like it, it's like I'm seeing a secret world. He's like, I don't know what you're talking about. Like ever, ever. I'm like, did you not see that lady walking down the street topless? Where? No, I didn't. I'm like, oh, come on. What are you looking at? But at the same time, once I started actually, you know, when, when Cindy at Changing Hands said, you should teach this this workshop, I was like, oh, you can't do that. And then I started thinking about it, and I was like, well, wait a minute. You know, if, if I study lines from, say, like Daniel Tosh, who's a fantastic stand-up comedian just on his own, aside from his show, um, if you look at his work, what he's doing is he's taking reality and truth, and then he's cranking it a little bit. And then he's twisting the truth into something else that's still, it's it's a little bit you know, abstract, but it's still recognizable as a truth. And then what he does, and he's a master, he goes one crank more, and it becomes a little bit more bizarre. And then by the third crank, like there's only three people left in the audience laughing. But if you're one of those three people, it is like you're in heaven. You get that joke. And getting three jokes out of one punchline is like, he's God. You know what I mean? So you can learn how to do that. You can learn how to look at something and just kind of twist the perspective on it a little bit, take it one step further, it retains its whole self, but it presents itself as something different, still relatable. And so that's why I tried to teach that to students, and it's also pacing and rhythm. And those are all things that you can you can totally learn just by practice and reading. So it's it's actually not really that hard. Is everything a potential funny story for you? I mean, when you are I mean, even talking about your husband doesn't see something that you see, is there? Are you just always sort of on the lookout? Is the radar always up? I can make something funny out of that. Um, no, well. Kind of. You always hope for that, you know, but I've always seen those sorts of things. I, I didn't even know that I was looking for them. I mean, I always just saw that kind of stuff and I didn't realize that other people weren't seeing them, you know. But when something super tragic happens, like, um, for example, I had this tumor on my neck. And that, that is just so disgusting to begin with. Who wants that? Right. Yeah. And I thought, I'm never going to tell anybody about this ever. But as it went on and all these things started happening that were tragic, borderline comedic, I thought, all right, that's one part of myself. If I can get a laugh out of it, I'll totally use it, even if it just if it makes me feel like like a dirty used sock. So now the whole world knows about my tumor that I named Emily and I had to have surgery on it. And it was so big that two doctors had to pull it out of my back. It was wrapped around my lung. I know. Shock silence again. You don't know. You're just looking at me with wide eyes. But it's a really funny story. I hope. Lauren Natero, longtime Phoenix resident. She deserted us for the Pacific Northwest. Her latest book is Housebroken, Admissions of an Untidy Life. Lori, always good to see you. Thanks. Oh, Steve, it's great to see you. And that's all for today's edition of KJZZ's Here and Now. Thanks to senior producer Sarah Ventry and Bruce Drummond for their assistance on the program. And thank you very much for listening. If you want to hear my conversations with humorist Lori Natero or a discussion about sports and arts funding in Arizona or one of our previous programs, please go online to kjzz.org later this afternoon. Or you can download the free KJZZ app to your smartphone. NPR's Here and Now is up next on member-supported KJZZ FM Phoenix and HD. 
I'm Steve Goldstein. Have a great rest of the day. It's 12 o'clock. KJZZ is supported by Arizona Oncology, together with the U.S. Oncology Network, united to redefine cancer care, working collaboratively with patients' primary physicians to ensure the highest continuity of care. More at ArizonaOncology.com.